Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. In this special Earth Day episode, we had the pleasure of talking again with poet Julie Howd. Julie defines for us her term, eco-surrealism, and we discuss the intersection of avant-garde poetry and the ever-pressing fight for the health of our planet. In this context of eco-surrealism, we also discuss the work of Argentinian poet Silvina Ocampo, specifically her selected poems published by NYRB. Julie also gives us an amazing eco-surrealist recommended reading list, which we will illuminate further over on our Instagram and also later on on the blog. We will also be including in the show notes a list of resources for ways to get involved to donate or volunteer on a local or national level to do your part in saving our planet and reversing the effects of climate change. We had such a blast talking with Julie again, and we hope you enjoy this conversation among friends. And as always, thanks for listening. Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Claire. Hi, Anar. Happy Earth Day. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, happy Earth Day. Thanks for having me back for my favorite day of the year. (laughs) You know, it's sad. I don't think I've ever celebrated Earth Day before. Oh, well, I think Earth deserves more than just one day to be celebrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is definitely true. What what do you think people do in celebration of Earth Day? Do you know of anything? You know, just go outside in nature, find ways to be more eco-friendly. I think that's actually basically how I met Joe was through an Earth Day initiative in our college dorm. (laughs) We were trying to like get all those students to be more eco-friendly and had this raffle and we were like knocking on everyone's doors trying to get people to come to our raffle to win things like you know a metal water bottle maybe like one of those curly light bulbs when we thought those did anything and yeah and (laughs) and so Joe was like one of the only people who came to the raffle and he he just showed up because apparently he thought I was cute Uh, not that he cared about the earth so oh my god that is so funny (laughs) I definitely want to include some links for people in the show notes for ways to donate and volunteer and get involved. Um, I know that the Trail Foundation in Austin has opportunities to volunteer this spring and probably all summer hiking around and picking up trash on the trails and stuff like that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have a list for people for some some fun, creative ways to do a little something for the planet. That's awesome. Yeah. And I also have some recommended reading for further reading after the podcast. And selfishly, I want the recommended reading too. Me three. Aside from enjoying nature and making donations, we can also pressure corporations to take responsibility for the damage that they're causing on earth and um, really connect with our local politicians and try to make a difference on 
like a local and state level. Yeah. In addition to being aware of how we like as consumers damage the environment. Um, I think as a consumer is the way that I practice my environmentalism the most because it seems like the most tangible way that we affect things. I know that there are all these other intangible ways, but like just choosing certain products and certain companies over others. I hope it's not just in my head making me feel like I'm doing a good thing because I know it takes like cumulative effort towards that end, but it does feel good to do. Yes. And something that maybe we can talk about more, but um, just want to throw it out there that one of the most impactful ways that you as an individual can make a difference in fighting climate change and environmental destruction is to shift more to a vegan diet as much as possible. Mm. Um, I don't think people are quite aware of the environmental impact that animal agriculture has, including, you know, fishing in our oceans and, you know, the destruction of the Amazon. But it's one of the leading causes, if not the top cause of climate change. And I think, you know, everyone should be aware of that and, and do what they can to reduce their meat consumption and um, just be mindful about the way we use other living creatures for our own pleasure. Yeah. That's a really hard one, too. So that's probably why it doesn't get as much attention. It is. It's the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it's it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around at first, but it definitely is doable. And um, I'm currently transitioning. So I encourage other people to um, look into it. And I'm always here as a resource if anyone has any questions or is wanting to learn more about how to how to make that transition. Totally. Julie, you're like our go-to poet for vegan recipes. <laughs> I feel like that's 90% of your Instagram feed are like these beautiful vegan concoctions that I actually do want to eat. <laughs> yeah, I hope that, you know, that can dispel the myth that veganism is in any way restrictive or boring. I think that a cool project would be a poetry cookbook I've thought this for a while now but I could totally see you doing like a vegan poetry eco surrealist cookbook not to jump ahead three steps <laughs> I mean I would love that <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of like uh Dolly's cookbook Les Diners de Gala yeah what I don't know about this oh tell her oh gosh I will have to just send you interior shots but it's I think that they're real recipes, but they're just extremely decadent and absurd. And they're paired with these crazy dolly images. Oh. Um, it's really interesting. But I also got a wine version that Dolly created that is pretty much like poems and prose about different kinds of wines. Um, I want that. Yes. It is really exciting really wonderful i'll send you all some screenshots and maybe we'll share them on the host instagram yeah that sounds amazing <laughs> so julie you presented this really cool idea to us and it's a term you've coined to kind of categorize your own work eco-surrealism 
which I really love and definitely don't think existed before you said it. And I feel like I get it on a sort of visceral level. Even just the term itself does a good job of explaining itself. But do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you think about its definition? Sure. So as you mentioned, it's a term I coined for my own poetry, which never really felt like it fit comfortably into any extent categories. Uh, (laughs) So I guess eco-surrealism borrows the modes of surrealism while centering and drawing on the natural world for its image systems. And whereas the original surrealist movement kind of got its start as a reaction or a response against World War I, and Mm -hmm. the senseless destruction that was going on during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, I see eco-surrealism as kind of filling that same role now as a response to our environmental destruction and the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really calls to mind the term avant-garde, which, you know, is a military term, um, being at the front. (laughs) And I don't really know how people think of the avant-garde movements Dada and surrealism, how it gets taught, if it gets taught anymore. I think it's a bit out of vogue, but it was highly political in nature at the time. Uh, We don't perceive it as being political poetry now because that means something different now. But um, to actually employ avant-garde modes in our current moment, I think can and should still be politically motivated. Yeah, Definitely. And I think um, it just seemed like the parallels were already there and that, Mm -hmm. you know, surrealism in the same way that it was used originally as a political movement in poetry, I think, can be used today. Um, Different than other types of political poetry that exist today, Mm -hmm. obviously. I really wish that when we published your book a year ago, unbelievable, (gasps) a whole year ago, um, that we were more familiar with this term because it is the perfect way to describe your own work instead of just being like, oh my God, Julie Howe's poetry is wild. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to be able to give it a term. And like Claire said, eco-surrealism, we know what that means, especially once we read your work and work that soon here we'll kind of describe as being within that genre. And so, yeah. It has really put a lot of the authors that we love into perspective. It's nice to be able to house you um, because it gives people like a place to start. Yeah, I think it was important for me to house myself Yeah, just because I never felt like, I don't know, not that I felt directionless, but my poems, they all felt very different from other things I was reading. And, you know, it's it feels good to have an intention. And I feel like everyone I learned from all my poetry mentors talked about urgency and the need for urgency in poetry. And I think I finally found what was my driver, what was, you know, what was urgent in my poems. I love that, Julie, that you were like, no, I don't know what kind of poetry I write, so I'm going to make up a term, and it's not a nonsense term. It, it's actually accurately describing not just what you do, but what you want to do and what you're passionate about doing in your poetry. I think that's really cool. And I think that now that we have encountered this term and can use it, there's several poets who come to mind 
that could potentially be company with you uh, in this subgenre. And I think it would be an interesting um, movement, if you want to call it a movement, to teach a class on. And I think that it could be really inspiring for a lot of young writers who are also looking for a way to place themselves and to define their sense of urgency if it happens to be related to climate change. And one can only hope that those young poets are out there. I'm sure that they are. Yeah, I would love to teach a class on eco-surrealism. I think that'd be so cool. It'd just basically be all the poets that I love the most just coming into Mm -hmm. a room together. Um, which I think I already had been doing just by loving surrealist type poetry, but being able to frame that in today's context, because as you did <laughs> say, surrealism kind of itself as a movement kind of is out of vogue. Um, and I think this is the perfect time for a revival and to make it cool again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had a beginning and a, and a middle and an end, you know, the movement itself was quite concise, but In my assessment of these terms, the avant-garde lives on, right? Like that more general term that doesn't specifically call to the movement is is a mode, as you said earlier, that I inhabit, that you inhabit as a poet, that Anar inhabits as a filmmaker. It's certainly something we three still care about and still employ. And it's just nice to have terminology for these things when especially in this particular mode, which can be so obtuse and dreamlike and strange, it is hard to put language to it. So um, I thank you for doing that work. I was going <laughs> to ask you, Julie, if you have, you know, a poet or some poets you want to maybe mention who you think of as being in this movement. Yes. So I have my whole stack of books here. I I actually have a bigger stack, but we'll get to that later. But I'll just show (laughs) you what I'm working with here. Beautiful. Wow. We're going to need a picture of that book stack, first of all. Definitely. Mm. For the people, if you're listening, the stack is big. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so obviously the poets who immediately come to mind are the ones that I've just been reading recently. So I'm sure there's many, many more mm-hmm. who fit into this category. But um, the books that I've been reading in the past year or so um, that I feel like really embody this idea of eco-surrealism include Whale and Vapor by mm-hmm. Kim Kyung-ju. Yes. Um, the Collected Poems of Chika Sagawa. I know we all love Chika here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another whale book, Whale in the Woods by Blueberry Elizabeth Morning Snow, and a new book that I just discovered by Yi Lu is Sea Summit, and that book is just phenomenal. Yeah, so those are just a few poets to check out. Yeah, we'll definitely have some links for everyone so they can find those works easily. I love all of those books that I have read. And I agree, they all have, they employ similar strategies in terms of like the voice in the poems, occupying multiple states of consciousness. And I really like that idea in surrealism and the avant-garde of 
you know, it's famous for being associated with the subconscious and the dream world. But the kind of natural link there for me with environmentalism is poetry that can inhabit the consciousness of other creatures that are not human. That is very cool. And it's definitely something that poets have been doing for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that's a feature that I see in in these sort of eco-surrealist poets is um, exactly that, just embodying the the non-human, whether it be plants or animals. So there's there's a few quotes that I was looking at while I was preparing for this podcast, and one of them was actually from Aldous Huxley, um, "The Doors of Perception." So, whereas realism seeks to emulate the observable world, surrealism is observing, you know, that part of the world that we can't see. So the observable Mm -hmm. world in tandem with the unobservable. And in order to kind of embody or understand or empathize with the non-human world, it takes that leap of imagination or the transcending of the conscious ego So the Aldous Huxley quote was about the mind at large. And I think that that mind at large, um, that consciousness, that super consciousness that connects all living things is why it's important for surrealism and eco-surrealism to inhabit more than just the limited conscious mind. And I have this quote to read here from The Doors of Perception to make biological survival possible, mind at large has to be funneled through the reducing valve of the brain and nervous system. What comes out at the other end is a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which helps us to stay alive on the surface of this particular planet. Most people, most of the time, know only what comes through the reducing valve and is consecrated as genuinely real by the local language. Yeah, that idea that the brain is constantly limiting what we can perceive, what we can understand, and what we can feel just to keep us sane and alive. I mean, it does that for a reason. It's an evolutionary tactic. But yeah, we're constantly filtering things out. Right. And so by being able to transcend our limited consciousness, I feel like that expands our empathy mm-hmm. and expands our understanding of the urgency to save our planet because we're a part of it and we depend on the natural world. We're we are not we're not apart from it. We are a part of it. Yeah. Um and I think that's something that people have forgotten. People think of humans and animals as distinct. Um, They think of the human world and the natural world as two different things, which is why out of all the the nature poetry that I gravitate towards, the human element is always at play because humans are part of nature and you can't talk about nature without talking about humans. That would be kind of idealistic and reductionist. It's just impossible to avoid talking about humans, especially today when when we write about nature because we've had such a huge impact on the way the environment looks today. Can I ask a question about this genre? Yeah. Why do you think it's important for there to be different levels of consciousness or different perspectives coming in from a poem to the reader? 
Yeah, I actually. <laughs> you got a quote, Julie? I've got a, I've got a quote. <laughs> I was doing so much research, but I found this quote that I feel like perfectly embodies surrealist work and especially the work that I'm interested in writing and reading. It's from the Random House Book of 20th Century French Poetry, which is a great book edited by Paul Auster. And he, in his introduction, he describes Pierre Reverdy's poems as combining an intense inwardness with a proliferation of sensual data. And I think that kind of perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about here. Wow. Yeah. Sensual data. What an interesting term because sensual just, you don't think of data when you hear that word. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it is, it's all data. (laughs) Yeah. And surrealism has such, um, it's so hugely influenced by science and technology and the rise of quantum physics in the 20th century. So mm. I definitely feel like that applies. The The scientific and the spiritual kind of seem to easily coexist in surrealist work. Wow. Beautiful answer, Julie. And that is something that, that excites me about, um, you know, surrealist, but the eco-surrealist movement um, that you've identified for us is that there's this constant shifting of lenses and something that you know that I kind of stay away from is where it's like new age poetry or like new age ideas and notions that are completely untethered from actual human experience because you want to be able to present these insane and intangible notions of existence in a very like stable and human and logical way And I feel like the best surrealist and best eco-surrealist writers really do blend dimensions and worlds and time together. Yeah, I think the, um, Julie, the funny and very apt phrase that you spoke at one point when we were talking beforehand was, this is not your average nature poetry. (laughs) And I don't really know what your typical nature poetry is anymore because it's not something that I seek out and read. Um, but I think there's a natural, even in some of our more widely accepted American environmental poets, I think there is a kind of natural friendship with strangeness in that yeah. in that style of writing. Well, nature is very strange. If you go out and you look at a tree or, you know, any kind <laughs> of plant, it's very strange. <laughs> I recently upgraded my phone lens. I use this thing called an Clip lens. And so I got a macro lens for my phone. And so now I'm looking at everything super, super like magnified. And it is amazing. It's mind bending. That sounds like um, so much fun. Wow. I think I need one of those. Except all I'd be doing is just taking pictures of trees all day. <laughs> Yeah, I've been just stalking blades of grass. I'm sure I'm creeping my neighbors out, but, <laughs> but you're right. Nature is is very interesting when you look at it very, very closely or very, very far away or mm-hmm. in a different state of mind. Um, 
And I think that's something I hear about a lot on the science podcast that I listen to called Ologies. I'm sure I've referenced it on our podcast before. One thing they talk about a lot, especially the scientists who work with preserving certain species or who work with plants in, in some capacity or environmentalism in some capacity, is they talk about science education and how you know, all of these people who go to school for it and get their master's or PhDs in all of these specified fields can go write a bunch of papers. And then that brings awareness to one level of of humanity, but it's a very small percentage of people. And so that education has to happen in other forms. That's why podcasts like Ologies are so great, because they're for little dum-dums like me. <laughs> um but, you know, it, it also helps people become interested. And I think that poetry can have the ability to do that, too, or other art forms as well. I think all art can and should be um, working towards that end. If the artist has or the writer has has a passion for it, it can be that little hook that gets somebody interested in something enough to research further or read the notes in the back of the book to find what sources were referenced to to discover something about about nature and what they can do to, you know, learning is like the first step in terms of understanding what to do. Also, you're not a dum-dum. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's different ways to learn right. for all of us. And so it's about finding what works for you. And it could be like what works for you while you're driving from... North Lamar to South Lamar. Yeah. Because we know that can be an hour sometimes. Um, yes. And it is <laughs> it is about people having the time. If you're not dedicating your life to doing these studies and writing these papers and doing the field research, you do not have the time to understand it all on that complex of a level. So, yeah, science education and I'm arguing, I guess, for science art <laughs> um, can be really amazing tools definitely yeah but it's really freeing when you understand your own work on a level that is beyond yourself mm -hmm. that isn't gimmicky mm. are we ready to talk about Sylvina Ocampo you guys yes I would love that Julie you chose Sylvina Ocampo for us to discuss today and we're reading her book of selected and translated works that came out with NYRB Poets. We will definitely include a link to that as well with everything else. And um, I can definitely see how she, some of her work especially, fits into this uh, notion of eco-surrealism. And she was writing some of this work as early as the 1940s. So that's really incredible, too, that we have a poet here who seem to have such an environmentally conscious style of writing um, when it doesn't, I don't really know that much about the history of environmentalism, but it doesn't seem like that would have been on people's radar quite as much then. Yeah, I feel like that would have been a bit early. I mean, I'm sure a little bit, you know, had kind of come into the conscious awareness, but probably not too much. You know, obviously the the damage was much less during that time as well. But I love how in the intro, um, the translator describes her poetry as having a sort of sentient kinship with plants and animals. Mm, and I yes. think, yeah, that's definitely what made me think of her when choosing a poet to talk about on this Earth Day podcast. 
Yeah, that's the perfect, succinct way to say it. A sentient kinship. I'm excited to talk about her work. Anara, you had read her already. Yeah, I read, I read this collection when it first arrived at Malvern Books, which time is just blurred for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember it speaking to me because I remember like the temperature of my body and like how bright the room was. Um, I was laying on my stomach on the carpet at work, which I probably should not have been doing. <laughs> and I just really had the time to enjoy and savor the work. Um, and I just remember really loving it. And I didn't quite understand why till we yeah. now years later have revisited this work. And Julie has been able to put some words and ideas into my mind about what makes this collection really special and really sweet. Yeah, I find it fascinating that I had never heard of Sylvina Ocampo until recently. And um, I find that very strange because she ran with a crew of really famous Latin American writers. She was married to Adolfo Boy Cesares. And of course, she was close friends with Jorge Luis Borges. And so they championed her work, supposedly, and encouraged her to publish. And she did publish, but she wasn't well read. Uh, even in her home country of Argentina. So there could be so many reasons for that. But one thing I really enjoyed from the introduction is this quote, which says, If her work was long overshadowed by the illustrious company she kept, she seemed to prefer it that way, being a rather shy and private person. Mm. So that's like, my heart is just already taken by her knowing this about her and Mm -hmm. that she was also so prolific and wrote tons of books in her lifetime and six of her books came out posthumously even so um, she was like a true writer whose heart was in the writing Mm -hmm. and uh, not in the fame and fortune (laughs) not that there's a lot of fame and fortune available in poetry (laughs) something about her that I that I read in the introduction and and then was later very apparent in her poems was her love for her country, you know, and the Mm -hmm. landscape and the history of Buenos Aires. And I feel like the love for the land is essential. And like, I think some of the best poets, you like know where they're from. There's an air about them and it's full of pride. As publishers based in Texas, we love our Texas poets. Yeah. Because there's like a familiarity and a kinship with the earth and the animals and you understand your surroundings on a very intimate level and yeah we start at the very beginning of this book with a enumeration of my country Mm -hmm. which is this big beautiful piece oh I know I love that poem and it's also a list poem if I remember correctly Mm -hmm. she's like a master of the list I learned through reading this book I mean it's It's interesting, too, because the way NYRB put this book together is that it is a selection from her seven books of poetry and some of her uncollected poems um, that were unpublished during her lifetime. And so you have all these sections and they're chronological. So we begin in 1942 and we end in 2001. Quite a range, quite a range of a selection from a poet's work. And to be able to read her earliest poems and her latest poems side by side 
is so fascinating. And you really see that it changes, um, but also some things don't really change. And one thing that didn't really change is that she loves to list. I just flipped to the first poem of her, her unpublished poetry. Um, and I'm just going to read it because it's four lines. Yeah, go for it. Singular wisdom. The only thing we know is what surprises us, that everything happens as if it hadn't happened. And I know that's not a list, but I just <laughs> thought it was so beautiful and kind of perfect to open up the conversation around her eco-poetry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this work is not, it's not going to be preaching in any capacity about how to take care of the environment or what our place is necessarily in this natural world, which is what's so wonderful about it, right? It's not your typical nature poetry. It is so subtle and so dreamlike and encapsulates multiple dimensions like we've mentioned before. So um, the poems that we chose from this collection to read today are the ones that are more urgently directed toward environmental ideas or that are just more connected to nature, honestly. I do want to mention the translator oh, and yes. organizer of this collection, Jason Wise. We are very grateful for translators bringing great mm -hmm. work into the English language. Um, and this, there's a beautiful introduction and it's very well organized. And I think it really captures the spirit and intention of Silvina Ocampo. I agree. Thank you for pointing that out, Anart. Jason wrote such a beautiful introduction. And from that, we learned that he's had a lifelong relationship pretty much with Silvina Ocampo's work and a personal relationship with her through letters while she yeah. was still alive. Yeah, it's really cool. And just an aside, were y'all both always introduction readers or did you skip the introduction and dive into the poems i like to skip to the poems first i like to just encounter them without any context um and then i usually go back mm. once i've read the entire book and then i'll read the introduction okay and then it kind of adds context and a deeper understanding but i do like to encounter them on their own first out in the wild mm. Cool. Yeah, I used to be a skipper, but um, <laughs> that's because I was just greedy for the poetry. I didn't want any <laughs> prose. Come on. But I've become such a nut about reading the introductions. I, I always read them first now. And a good introduction doesn't spoil anything or or change, you know, the way I encounter the poetry, mm -hmm. I don't think. So and this is a this is a particularly good one. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed this one. Yeah. And it was pretty concise. Some some introductions, they can go on and on. And I'm like, all right, let's just get to the poetry. <laughs> I'm reading a book right now that has a 40 page introduction. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then it's like 40 pages of books. That's too much. That's like a whole extra book. <laughs> yeah. So rough. But I used to skip the introduction of everything until a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, this is like a Wikipedia entry that's well written. <laughs> of course, <laughs> context is powerful. Um, but I do agree with you, Julie, sometimes going in blind and returning mm -hmm. can be a really beautiful experience. All right. Should we read some poems? Let's do it. Will you start us off, Anar? Yes. Epitaph for a Tree 
Like a drink of water, I gave shade in summer. My sap captured the gold of evening and the pale persistence of the river and the dove. So inattentive were the glances that no man in this world could ever enumerate my leaves, my songs. Now my absence occupies much space. A flight of incessant birds marks the place where I am missing, which grows larger. I always get goosebumps at the end. <laughs> yeah, those last lines are incredible. The place where I am missing, which grows larger. Wow. That was the first poem that stuck out to me in this collection as being particularly environmental in tone. And I don't know that, not that this is important, but I don't know that that would have been intentional on her part. It's just so impactful to think of that absence growing larger in terms <laughs> of what is happening to our planet. Yeah, I I feel like she is so prophetic in certain ways, especially in, in poems like this, because, yeah, I don't know if it was intended to be a commentary on the environment. Um, it could have been, you know, just a single tree that was destroyed in her neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But having the lens that we have now, um, it just makes it seem like she was seeing what what was coming. And that is clearer in, in some of the other poems we're going to read today, too. Just observing humankind's disregard, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be very easy to write a bunch of bad poems about that. That's the thing, is like these are hard topics to write about, around, through, and so it is this kind of strange magic, I think, in this poem where even just the description of the tree, my sap captured the gold of evening, that is so effective and so singular. She's clearly a writer who needed to be more well-read <laughs> during her life. I think that's, you know, something we say about a lot of writers, especially women writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't surprise me that, you know, all her friends were famous male writers yep. <laughs> who got all the yep. attention. But yeah, I mean, this poem is is epitaph for a tree and you can see, you know, it's so small it, it could fit on a gravestone. Yeah. I'd also like to add that in the introduction, it was pointed out that there was this tension in her marriage mm -hmm. where she felt kind of never like settled yeah. and always kind of anticipating betrayal and just never enough. And I feel like she places herself in the lines so inattentive were the glances that no man in this world could ever enumerate my leaves, my songs. Yes. Ugh. So just having that context, like you just really feel it where she's coming from and maybe how she felt. And I know there's several other poems where that kind of tension is present. Well, and just the use of the uh, first person pronouns in this poem, there's something so beautiful in that conflation of the self with the, mm -hmm. the nature object, with the tree, mm -hmm. which gives the tree an entity, but it also, like you're saying, Anar, throws some light on what her internal state 
might have been in the moments of writing this poem. Yeah, we can never really truly separate ourselves from our writing. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like a persona poem. No. You know, where it's like I'm taking on the persona of a tree and this is like a fictional rendering of its thoughts. Right. (laughs) That conflation is so pure to me and so complete in both directions, you know? It is the Mm -hmm. tree and it is Sylvina. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... The next poem we were going to talk about is Apocalypse. Yes, I can read it. Apocalypse. If the constancy of the dawn ceases, and one day the sun doesn't rise, and death comes to the punctual splendor that announced it, if in the marbled water the heavenly memory of the star upon a dark night doesn't shine forever, If a light tremor of wings in the trees marks the silence of the birds, if the night no longer soothes like balm and becomes an inferno of water and mud, if the pansy doesn't open its corolla, if the stubborn vine dies, if the fruit and fragrance of the roses vanishes in the deep gardens, we will think we are still dreaming We will recall similar days that we could not share with anyone. Days when the pain in our eyes placed the image of the apocalypse. Apocalypse is such an interesting word for this poem and as the title because what the poem describes is a kind of slow dying off Mm -hmm. species by species i mean that's hauntingly familiar Mm -hmm. that's not what i think of when i think of apocalypse um i think of 2020 i think of (laughs) pandemics i think of you know more sudden unexpected catastrophic Mm -hmm. events and this is a very beautiful and silent and slow deadly apocalypse which is, you know, again, hauntingly accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this basically describes the current apocalypse that we're living right now. And some people might not realize it, but we are in the midst of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. If we don't change things very quickly, it'll soon become irreversible. And that's why I feel like this slow death that you were talking about has been happening. It's been happening for hundreds if not thousands of years, um, certainly escalated or accelerated in the past 200 years or so. But ever since humans kind of tipped the balance of the scales, um, we've been going in that direction. And we don't see it, but I think I mentioned in my my last podcast, which was also very apocalypse-focused, you know, we are losing like 150, 200 species every day. We don't see it, and we'll never see those creatures again. Um, And it's really sad to think of the loss of biodiversity and not to bring the whole mood down, but (laughs) I just feel like this is one of those poems that does feel so prophetic, especially for the time that it was written. Well, and I think it's interesting that the specific species that are mentioned are plants and 
They're ones that feel so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. The rose, you know, especially for poetry. The pansy, even. Pansies are prolifically used in <laughs> landscaping and gardens mm-hmm. and such. Um, they're hardy. And roses are really hardy, too. So I feel like she's she's doing something subtle there as well, where it's like those are the last flowers to go. Mm. Um, it's mm-hmm. inconceivable that they could ever not be here. Right. I do love how slow and subtle this apocalypse is portrayed, though, because at the end of the day, like, I think it does instill a sense of urgency and panic when we read this poem. Yeah. And realizing, like, this is happening very quietly while you're watching Netflix on the couch or <laughs> while you're having brunch with your friends. Um, it's it's happening and it's going to keep happening. And it's one of those things where it just snowballs. Um, and it makes me think of the winter storm that we had here in Texas mm-hmm. and how it's spring and things are starting to bloom, but there's also so much that is not blooming that is usually here. The plants, large plants that we are familiar mm-hmm. with that um, we would describe as desert plants that nothing can kill are rotting. And that's a very big reminder of what climate change is doing and that we need to make some big changes on a national, a local level. Um, Nature's telling us that we can no longer avoid it and it's just going to become less subtle over Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, and the fact that she, it's almost like she predicted or knew about global warming with lines, if the night no longer soothes like balm and becomes an inferno of water and mud. Yeah. Um, I also love that this poem is set up with if. If, Mm -hmm. if, if. And the then is, we will think we are still dreaming. We will recall Mm. similar days that we could not share with anyone. Days when the pain in our eyes placed the image of the apocalypse. It's almost like she's saying, you you can see this coming. You're going to think of today when you see it coming. Mm -hmm. The image is already in your brain. Yeah. It's so dreamy and subtle, but it's also very harsh in a way. Yeah. And days that we could not share with anyone. So it's like we're all thinking it, but no one's talking about it. Um, It's kind of too painful to talk about. It's a great poem. Yeah. This this poem really blew me away. (laughs) You know, this is what I love about her work is... She is so invested in the poetics, uh, in the language. And I know that a lot of that has to do with Jason Weiss's translation. Um, So definitely want to give him cred. But if in the marbled water, the heavenly memory of the star, that is so, it feels classic. Yeah, and it's it's funny, too, that that image is already of the memory of a star yeah so even the memory of the star is gone Mm. because stars in the universe die out and we still see their light and it's sort of like kind of predicting where we're going Mm -hmm. well now i'm scared (laughs) now that everyone is sufficiently bummed out (laughs) 
Well, I mean, we're here to talk about the Earth. And if you're going to talk about the Earth, you're going to have to point out the fact that she's not doing that mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Thank God for the poets who have been tuned in to that for centuries, you know? Mm-hmm. This isn't new. It's just a little more urgent than it has been in the past. Mm. Bird girl, I love... If a light tremor of wings in the trees marks the silence of the birds. This is poetry. It's so beautiful. So great. Even just the fragrance of the roses vanishes in the deep gardens. Like the the idea of the deep gardens. Mm. Just like, this poem soothes me. I I have to be honest. It does. It soothes me and it scares me at Mm. the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's why... I'm so drawn to Ocampo as a quote-unquote nature poet because eco-poetry, as we generally think about it, can be kind of hopeless Mm -hmm. and very grim. Um, And while this is very grim, it doesn't sacrifice beauty. And like you said, the use of if, you know, there is still hope. And it isn't just poetry in service of the message Mm -hmm. it's poetry full stop right and it also conveys through poetry's mystical magical varied modes it does convey those messages still that's what's so incredible about it Mm -hmm. yeah and it, it doesn't sacrifice craft to to get that message across yeah palm tree in the window In the window with memories of the sea, with reminiscences of rivers, of the Bible, and of deserts, a palm tree moves its leaves. Does it too suffer from living in the city, or does it stand so high in the sky that it avoids the miseries of our civilization? Maybe it's unaware of what's happening at its feet. Dogs bark in the distance. They don't bother it. Doves flap their wings in the palm leaves. The tree doesn't feel them. Children throw stones. It doesn't glance their way. Music, planes, break the silence. It doesn't hear them. If trees sleep, it too will sleep. Closing the blinds in its trunk. Thousands of eyelids shut for the night as the blue labyrinth of a storm approaches. But I know it sails in favor of the wind, over the plants, and the frightened birds, like a goddess in love, and it will awaken with the splendor of cataclysms. I love that poem, too. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to read that one because, as Anar mentioned, the seemingly indestructible desert plants in Austin are dead or dying, many of them, because of recent freakish weather events. And the palm trees have really taken a hit. Many of them are oh, gone. Really? Oh, my God. So my heart really jumped when I started reading this poem, but mm-hmm. also just the way that it ends. Um It's like the palm tree itself obviously has a consciousness that's being explored here, and it knows that it will awaken with the splendor of cataclysms. 
And I don't know what that means, but I want it to mean that the plants are survivors and that, you know, many of them can suffer greatly at our hands and go away and come back. Um, I know that doesn't happen for all, all species, but, you know, thinking specifically of our, our palm trees right now, um, I just love that. It will awaken with the splendor of cataclysms. And that's also got a darkness to it. What are the cataclysms? Maybe it's that we will not be here forever, which is very probable. Right. And that's when they will have their day. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love that she uses the word splendor um, because that's a very positive word. And, you know, splendor of cataclysms isn't usually a phrase we associate with apocalypse. Um, But that splendor and the palm tree awakening does kind of make that assumption that, like, yes, plants and nature will reawaken um, once humans get what's coming to them. Yeah. (laughs) Is it sad that we're rooting for them? I'm on team tree. (laughs) Always have been. Yeah. I think we all are. I mean, the thing is, you know, we've been waging this war with nature. Um, We're in this power struggle with nature. But if we just stopped and stepped back, then nature would be very happy to live in harmony with us and would take care of us. Like, it's really really trying so hard to take care of us. We can't survive without trees. They give us oxygen. And it's just so sad that even while we're destroying them and destroying the rainforests they're still what keeps us alive and keeps our planet at a temperature that we can survive on Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautifully said julie i also love that the city makes an appearance in this poem yes and i think it kind of speaks to that too it's like you said earlier you know cities belong in nature poetry definitely (laughs) not just as the enemy and it is a little bit here it's (laughs) at least in you know a source of misery but that's that's part of the natural landscape because it's part of our natural landscape. We just need to be less selfish with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like a glorified anthill. <laughs> the city. This poem reminds me of a film that I recently watched that had this very powerful image of a woman standing in the desert and... In the frame, it's a very long shot, like several minutes. She's just watching a palm tree on fire Mm. and her back is to the camera. It's such a gorgeous image. Um, It's from the film Queen of Diamonds by Nina Menkes, and it takes place in Las Vegas. And it's such a strange and interesting film. (laughs) But I feel like if this poem had an image... It would be that. Oh, yeah. What a way to end that poem. Mm-hmm. And she even includes the blue labyrinth of a storm. And mm-hmm. that just makes me think of all these really intense hurricanes and weather mm-hmm. events that we've been having so extremely in the past, you know, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Rather than thinking of it as a kind of poetic prophecy, I think of... Poets like Silvina Ocampo as just being really tuned in to what Mm -hmm. is going on. And that includes 
what has gone on and what will go on. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are visible in the present moment. And she strikes me as the kind of person who was always listening. There's Mm -hmm. so much auditory detail in her poems. Much of it is nature-based. And, of course, the introduction describes her as a shy and private person. And I just imagine her as being really attentive and listening. Mm -hmm. She's an observer of the world. Mm -hmm. Goosebumps with music. Planes break the silence. It doesn't hear them. Like, what a way to make us feel so small. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm. That's a huge part of what she's doing here is saying that all of this is going on. And the tree's eyes, its thousand eyelids, are closed. And it doesn't awaken until the splendor of cataclysms, which does not bode well for us. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the Boston Public Library had an exhibit at the New Central Garden City Megacity that was like a vision of how large cities can coexist with nature and it was like these beautiful large cities imagined with like lots of greenery growing on the sides um gardens on the rooftops and I like to think that we reach an agreement with nature that is a mutual respect for the planet and for civilizations and for animals to coexist yeah Surrealism implies that the mind creates reality. And so with enough imagination, we have the power to change the course of our future. And the first way that our imaginations can change what's going on is by changing the way we think of nature. And rather Mm -hmm. than seeing it as an us and them dichotomy, we reimagine ourselves as being a part of the natural world Mm -hmm. and by doing this and maybe using it, the vehicle of the poem, um, Mm -hmm. we can create that future and there is still hope. We haven't crossed that threshold quite yet, but it, it will take a lot of imagination to change it and, um, it'll require a global effort. Well said, and we'll do everything we can to help people find even a small way to do that. So that's why we would like to go ahead and include a list of resources for this episode. Julie's going to give us some reading material Mm -hmm. and we're going to collaborate and compile a list of ways to get involved to, um, to do what we can. But first and foremost, let's read these poems and share them. And if there's other poets we should be reading who are perhaps eco-surrealists as well, we encourage people to reach out to us and let us know. Yeah. And yeah, check out Instagram for pictures of Julie's book stack. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Julie, for enlightening us and joining us on this episode for Earth Day. It means so much for you to come back to our podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love being a spokesperson for the Earth. So whenever I get the chance to do that, I'm always excited. Oh, thanks, Julie.